Good afternoon, this is Greg Lois. Uh, if you're here today, you're here for our New Jersey webinar series. Uh, today's topic is getting the most out of your IMEs. Uh, today, we're going to talk about some New Jersey-specific things to know about IMEs. Uh, just quickly, we're going to run through some of the facts about New Jersey um, or some how we get IMEs. First of all, you can get as many as you want. You really can get infinite number of IMEs. You can get them any time during the pendency of the case. The petitioner must attend our IMEs under Section 19. If they fail to attend, uh, we can terminate or suspend benefits. Uh, generally, we don't pay for the petitioner to travel to an IME, and there are some exceptions to that we can talk about a little bit later. There are no forms to file, and there's no specific deadlines or scheduling requirements that we have to abide by in New Jersey, uh, and no strict notice requirements. So we can tell the petitioner to attend an IME 10 days in advance, five days in advance, uh, whatever the court is going to uh, consider reasonable. It's a very easy jurisdiction uh, to get IMEs in, uh, as opposed to other jurisdictions that I practice in. So what we're really going to focus on today is not so much can you get an IME or sort of that very basic uh, uh, level of consideration. We're really going to talk about how most effectively uh, we can use our IMEs and how we're going to use IMEs. Uh, my name is Greg Lois. If you're here with me today, you're here for the webinar. The webinar kind of loosely follows my book. Um, now, the interesting thing about this handbook is uh, we've been sort of month by month going chapter by chapter. Uh, today's uh, conversation isn't, does not have a specific chapter, and that's because scheduling IMEs and the rules surrounding getting an IME in New Jersey is so easy. I didn't really require its own chapter. So discussions of IMEs and how we use them are two real places in the book, page 86, when we talk about dealing with a motion for med and temp, and also, of course, in chapter 12, when we talk about trials. Uh, this is part of our overall webinar series. This is the fourth Monday of the month, so we're here doing New Jersey. Uh, the third Monday is always New York, and I usually am doing that webinar uh, with one of my associates or teammates in uh, New, uh, New York practice. Um, there are four main ways that we keep you up to date with the law in New Jersey. Uh, number one, my handbook. Uh, number two, you can always search our website. There's a lot of information on there. In fact, every article that I've ever published for the last nine years, and it's something like uh, 20 articles a year for the past nine years straight. Um, of course, our monthly webinar series. And finally, I do a newsletter. Uh, please subscribe to the newsletter because that's how we put out information about our new handbooks. The new handbooks now are done. They're at the publisher, and we expect to get them back in December and start shipping them out in December. All right, this is an interactive webinar, and as I am looking here, I can see some of my clients have logged in, uh, and are, are, I can see you are part of this conversation today, but let's make it a conversation. It's a lot more fun when it is a conversation, so please feel free to use that question bar. It might look different if you're watching me on an iPad. I think the questions are at the bottom. If you're on a laptop or your desktop, you see a bar that looks like this or a panel that looks like this. Type any questions into me. Uh, I can see the questions pop up here live. I have a panel that I can uh, click on and I can see the questions. I can see who's asking it. So I will say your name. I'll say, oh, thanks, uh, John or Joe, and then I'll, I'll give you a response. Um, it's a lot more fun when you do uh, give me questions. Feel free to do questions during. I can even see them popping up. Okay, let's talk about IMEs, and I want to talk about it from your perspective. You're getting a call from your insured, your location, your client, and they're saying, hey, should we get an IME, or is this the right time for an IME? Uh, which IME should we use, and how do we get the best report out of our IME physician? So I'm going to tackle all those questions today, and the first question is, when? 
really. When should we get that IME? Um, when is the right time really to schedule that IME? Well, I think the answer is, generally speaking, in New Jersey, when the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement. There's really two reasons for that. One, it's really the earliest you can get an opinion on permanency. We can't get a permanency evaluation, and that's a doctor telling us what the residual degree of medical impairment is going to be, if any, uh, until the petitioner has been medically discharged. And that means uh, they've been released from care from their primary care physician, and that's someone we're authorizing. Uh, the other time uh, is they're at MMI, and we don't want to wait the statutorily allowed length of time before we get an IME. So our New Jersey statute says that uh, we can wait 26 weeks from the time the petitioner reaches MMI before we schedule an IME. Most of my clients want to wait 26 weeks. Why? Well, you get the natural healing process benefit, and sometimes the petitioner just forgets about some of their earlier complaints. You'd be surprised how many petitioners six months after they've been discharged from care uh, have maybe forgot about, oh, it's painful every time I, I get in the car and, and I have to reach behind me, abduct, and put the seatbelt in across my arm. Uh, you might be surprised that after a while those complaints uh, fall away. Why? One, they heal. Right. It's possible that people get better. I know we've all done workers comp for a long time and more medical treatment doesn't necessarily mean people's uh, conditions improve. But the fact of the matter is most people do improve uh, from medical care and also from the natural healing process. The second thing is I think they just forget. They just forget uh, their catalog of complaints and small hurts that they were explaining to their treating physician. And that also inures to our benefit. But many of my clients say, Great, I don't even want to wait the 26 weeks. Here's why. I want to make a voluntary tender. That's a voluntary payment of compensation. And under Section 64 of our statute, if you make an early payment towards permanency, petitioner's counsel is not allowed to get a fee on that. Now, attorney's fees in New Jersey are 20%, and those are typically split by the judge of compensation, 60% paid for by the respondent, that's us, and 40% paid for by the petitioner. So this could be a way for us to save approximately 12% on the overall settlement. So that's an also another reason to get an IME. An obvious time to get an uh, independent medical evaluation is when the petitioner already has their own exam or you know it's scheduled. Maybe you don't have that MMI in your hand, but you know that they've scheduled in a, a, uh, uh, their own evaluation. And when, when could that could happen? Well, in New Jersey, there is no central docketing system where all medical records are filed. Sometimes our file is a little behind uh, the actual treatment. Petitioner knows they were discharged. Maybe it takes a couple of weeks for the doctor's office to send you the medical record with the uh, discharge note. But the fact that they've scheduled their own exam is a big hint to us that the petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement. So uh, that's another time to get an exam. And finally, let's say we need to um, challenge a new body part coming into the case, or uh, there's a treatment request that we want to dispute. And this would particularly be treatment requests uh, that are beyond curative and simply palliative, or treatment requests for experimental treatment, which is not uh, recommended by the authorized treating physician. Next question I get a lot, and this is one that you'll be faced with, is which evaluator do we use? Um, and those come down to questions about speciality uh, and the history that we've had with this physician. Of course, we're going to consider costs, and I'm always going to be thinking about how well they testify. Let's talk about that just very quickly. Petitioners' counsel tend to rely on physicians that have no board certifications. Uh, it's actually probably 50-50. I'd say 50% of their physicians are just general practitioners. Uh, 
Uh, they'll call themselves a specialized specialist in family medicine, or they'll say general medicine or internal medicine. Uh, there's one uh, claimant's physician who calls himself emergency medical physician. Uh, but really, they have no board certifications. They've got no special training or fellowships. Um, when you look at their publications, uh, you'll see that there's nothing specifically about occupational injuries or treating traumatic orthopedic or the types of injuries that we see in the workplace. So generally speaking, I don't find them to be very well credentialed. Um, that's important because we have this opportunity to select a physician that typically is going to be board certified in their specialty, uh, typically, uh, especially in the context of picking out a physician um, for something like a pulmonary disorder or an internal injury uh, or a vascular disorder. We can find physicians, generally speaking, who have wonderful pedigrees, who have published many articles on these topics. Uh, so I like that because I think that lends the, our physician more credibility than their physicians. And credibility is what the judge's determination is going to be based on in New Jersey. Uh, finally, uh, I'm sorry, not finally, but next, history. What's the history with this uh, physician? And we've seen over time our IME evaluators sort of fall into different camps. And I like a evaluator who's extremely predictable that when I send someone to them with a very similar injury to an injury I've sent them in the past, that they're going to give me a very predictable range of medical impairment based on the objective medical factors. Cost. Cost is a consideration. Uh, the evaluators will range anywhere in price from $450 to $600 on the low end, all the way up to $1,500 or more on the high end, and that would vary by speciality and the pedigree or the CV curriculum vitae of the physician that we're choosing. And finally, here's the thing that I consider the most and, and to me uh, is important. It's how does the evaluator testify in court? It's one thing for them to give a flashy presentation and tell you what a great physician they are or write beautiful reports. But when it comes time to testify, if they don't testify well, we're dead. I'm going to talk about trial in a little bit and our, our evaluator's role in that trial. Um, I would also say this, our best evaluating physicians, uh, the doctors who we use most routinely, have been instrumental in helping me prepare to cross-examine our adversary's physician. What do I mean by that? First of all, I find that our best IME evaluators um, are the most passionate and they'll review the medical records and they'll call me up sometimes and say, you can't believe, I can't believe the treatment this person received. They were over-treated or they were misdiagnosed and they get passionate about these cases. Um, they also get passionate when they think someone's lying to them. I think they're all used to seeing the typical malingering that we expect out of petitioners uh, when they're doing an independent medical evaluation. But I could tell you that they are very passionate and they do reach out to counsel to talk to us. Um, in cases where we're using a real medical specialist, so let's talk about something like epidemiology or a toxicologist or a pulmonologist when I have an exposure case or perhaps a latent exposure case, I need information to help me cross-examine our adversarial doctor, and this is the best person to help prep me. Um, I've had wonderful communication, and I don't think they've ever even charged the clients for this in advance, and they'll, I'll call them up. I'll say, listen, I'm going to be deposing their doctor in two weeks. Can you give me a heads up about what I should be going after? Um, by this time, they've received our adversary's uh, evaluation or report and are usually quite helpful in giving me pointers on what I should hammer on cross-examination. Um, example, uh, things like the evidence relied upon by the claimant's physician. The petitioner's doctors often are just subjectively parroting back the complaints that the petitioner gave them. And 
for our physician to help um, me focus on that or to point out errors where the petitioner's IME physician is relying on faulty research or faulty medical information. How do we get the best report? How do we get our evaluator to provide us with a report that's gonna be the most useful to us? Can we affect the outcome of these reports? Well, in New Jersey, the answer is yes, you can. And this is much different than other uh, jurisdictions where you may have to, and for, I'm just using my comparative jurisdiction, New York, where when we get an IME in New York, everything that goes to the physician is copied both to the judge, to the board, to our adversary, to his doctors. Uh, the cover letter to the physician uh, is out there in the open. Well, in New Jersey, it's not, right? It may come out during the course of trial, but the information we include in the cover letter does not necessarily have to be copied to our adversary. Um, and that information that we provide to our physician, I like to be as in-depth as possible. I like to provide them with obviously every medical record and an assembled index. We do a reverse chronological index for the physicians. I like to provide them with answers to any of the um, uh, interrogatory requests that we may have received, anything I got back in response to a subpoena, any social security disability claims file information, uh, any information I obtained from the cross-examination of the petitioner. That's all fair game if it uh, came into the court, for example, during a motion for med and temp, and now later on in the case, I can pull that, uh, that transcript. I love to give them um, things from the interrogatories, uh, and then I like to give them information, particularly in the context of occupational exposure cases that I have obtained from the location, and those could be things like air quality studies, industrial hygiene studies, any of the type of workplace information uh, that we're obtaining during our normal uh, contact with the employer as we would prepare for a hearing or trial. Finally, uh, surveillance, right? Uh, every dum-dum in the world now has 15 different forms of social media performing self-surveillance on, on, on themselves at any time. Well, that may have surprise value at trial, it may not. Uh, and we're also obtaining active surveillance of these petitioners. And that could be surveillance of them uh, in just regular surveillance that we obtain during the course of the case to find out if there's any per se fraud. Um, we could be using surveillance that we're obtaining in the workplace. Like here's the video of them actually doing their job now that they've returned to work. And those are particularly useful in cases involving uh, alleged limb injuries, you know, a hand, foot, finger, toe case. Um, and particularly anything that doesn't have surprise value. Here's why I would only share surveillance with a physician that does not have per se fraud or surprise value, because it's gonna get out there and it's gonna come out before the trial because our evaluating physician is gonna review the surveillance and say, uh, when uh, the petitioner was in my office, they were limping and using a cane and they had a neck brace, et cetera. And then I watched surveillance of them walk out of my office, take off the neck brace, fling it in the air, throw the cane in the back of their motorcycle sidecar, get on their motorcycle and wheelie down the street or whatever they observe uh, or state. Um, so that surveillance is gonna come out in that report. I'm gonna have to turn over the report before the trial. And that means that our surveillance, that cat is kind of out of the bag if it has surprise value. Uh, but if the surveillance doesn't, and if it's the typical type of surveillance that we see so much of and probably bores you so much, like when you see it and I see it, you know, the person uh, is mainly in their house and then they go to the dollar store and they buy a pack of cigarettes and they come home, then they buy, go to the liquor store and buy a lotto tickets and they come home. You know, this sort of surveillance, it doesn't really show them working, doesn't really show them doing things that exceed the expected restrictions. Um, in those cases, that surveillance is fine to share or may be fine to share because it doesn't really have surprise value at trial. So those are things to think about. 
All right, uh, let's talk about trial and settlement, okay? Uh, and how the doctor affects the trial. Now, you know that when we go into a trial situation, we've done a pretrial um, memorandum, and we've exchanged reports with our adversaries. So here's two model reports. You've seen these a million times. Uh, they're from uh, typical physicians, Dr. Bacan on their side, Dr. Canario on our side. And really in the pretrial conversation, these are what exchanged between the parties. And then we talked uh, with the judge of compensation about can we resolve this case without the necessity of trial? We can't always do that. And sometimes we don't want to do that. And there might be many valid reasons why a trial uh, is preferable uh, to just having the judge kind of call the case on reports. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the about the speed of a trial and why we would do it. Um, First of all, remember, um, trials in New Jersey are really cheap to start, right? Because the petitioner testifies. We might even have the petitioner start testifying the same day. Uh, then we can bring in rebuttal witnesses or employer witnesses. Again, very quick, very cheap. You're really talking about a couple hours of attorney time to prep and attend. The next step in a trial, and this slows the whole thing down, is the petitioner's IME doctor. And remember, petitioner's IME doctors are limited. They can only uh, get $800 for appearing in court. And that, of course, limits the quality of physicians they're going to get. Uh, and also, please note, they can only get a $400 fee for the report that they actually write. Again, that's going to limit uh, the uh, type of physicians that are going to be willing to come in court and testify on behalf of petitioners. But this is also a decision point in the case, right? So, you know, we can very quickly uh, execute the green sheet, the uh, pretrial memorandum. We can uh, begin the trial testimony of the claimant and maybe any employer witness. But on a how much or case, the next step is for the petitioner to bring in their doctor. It's going to slow down the proceedings and it take a couple months for them to come in. They don't like testifying in court, even though the court now allows them to testify via video. Uh, they don't make much money, really dollars, to be locked up for an entire afternoon to be pulled in. Um, so right then, that's a great opportunity for us to settle the case. The next thing, the person that can come in is the petitioner's treating physician. Sometimes three and four are reversed. Um, again, they're limited to getting only $2,500. It's extremely rare for a petitioner's treating physician to come in and testify. And then finally, the last step is for our physician to testify. Now, by this time, we have got a really good idea of where the case is going. We're getting a lot of feedback from the judge. And when I put our physician in to testify, I really uh, want to see um, our physician testify strongly. I do not want to see them departing from the opinion that they've already expressed within the four corners of their report. Our adversary loves to pose hypotheticals to our physicians. Well, doctor, I understand these are the facts as you understood them, but if you knew this, wouldn't that change your opinion? Those types of questions, those purely hypothetical questions, merely meant to make our doctor sort of change their opinion uh, or, or to sort of retread or reconsider uh, aspects of the case. Uh, that's where your defense attorney really has to like push back uh, and raise objections to those purely hypotheticals. The reason is this, the judge is gonna come up with a reserve decision. That reserve decision is going to be based essentially on which doctor, uh, on a, the witness credibility of the petitioner, did they seem credible? Did their story hold up under cross-examination? And then two, in the case of how much permanent residual disability there is or whether or not a body part is related or unrelated, the judge is going to base that decision based on the credibility of the physicians. You want your physician to be the most credible physician in the room, and the way to do that is have them be well-prepared, have reviewed all the facts of the case, and then on cross-examination, make sure that they stick to their story, that they do not waver or start uh, reconsidering their opinions. So 
those are the types of physicians that we tend to favor. And my uh, stable, the physicians that I'm continually rep recommending to my clients, are the IME physicians who I've had testify for me 20, 25 times over the past dozen years, the types of physicians who I know when they're on the stand are going to stick to the story that's within the four corners of their report. Uh, that's my job as your defense counsel to make sure they do and they don't get led astray. And that lets the judge make a decision based on credibility. I think if we can present a doctor who's better prepared, who's reviewed more fact information, more medical information, more objective medical information, and then has better credentials than the claimant's one-time treating physician, I'm sorry, one-time evaluating physician, that we can prevail or have the judge find our doctor more credible than the petitioner's physicians. All right, I see questions piling up here. That's the end of my prepared slides. So let me start to answer some of these questions. Question number one, uh, this is from Megan. Once the claimant receives a voluntary tender, is that final? Can he or she file for additional permanency afterwards? Okay, great question, and the, the answer is absolutely yes. So typically what we're doing in the voluntary tender situation is trying to make some payment, uh, advance payment of compensation to serve essentially as a credit against whatever amount of compensation is ultimately awarded. We typically do these in litigated cases, but the case does not have to be litigated in order for you to make a voluntary tender. And the point of this would be uh, a situation where, for example, we got a uh, scheduled uh, a finding from our evaluating physician. And let's say our physician finds 10 percent of the statutory left hand. OK, um, that's a very high finding. We know that their evaluating physician is going to come up higher. Maybe they're going to find 50 percent of the statutory hand. In that circumstance, uh, counsel will often recommend, hey, let's make a voluntary tender. Let's voluntarily pay that benefit of up to 10% of the statutory hand because, hey, we know we're not going to do any better than that, right? Even if the petitioner doesn't get their own exam, we're still going to be on the hook for the amount of uh, uh, loss of use uh, or medical impairment that our evaluator found. So in those circumstances, it's very easy to recommend a voluntary tender. Um, oh. And then the second part of your question, can he or she file for additional permanency afterwards? Yes, absolutely. So in this situation where we get our own IME report, we pay out a voluntary tender, maybe up to the value of our evaluator's finding, and then they go get their own report with a much higher amount and come into court and say, judge, I'm entitled to much more than this. Um, yeah, we, we would then uh, pay a little bit more maybe, uh, but we would, of course, obtain a credit for what we already paid. And remember, we don't pay an attorney's fee on the amount that we voluntarily issued. Okay, I see a second question. This is coming from Robin. Um, with a voluntary tender, do you make a one-time payment or do you do it weekly? If you can do a weekly voluntary tender, can you stop or must you keep going? Okay, excellent question. So typically with a voluntary tender, you are making a weekly ongoing payment because you are making this voluntary tender and statutorily you have to before 26 weeks have elapsed from the time of maximum medical improvement. So the maximum you could ever uh, voluntarily make before uh, we would expect them to have their own permanency evaluation uh, would be in the realm of four or five months of payments. But let's back up and make this even more understandable. Yes, the answer is we typically pay the voluntary tender on an ongoing basis with the exception that it's backdated to the date they reached maximum medical improvement. Uh, that could be the day the doctor found that maximum medical improvement or the date temporary disability ended, whichever is earlier. So that payment would then go forward weekly 
until we uh, resolve the ultimate issue of permanent disability, uh, which is Megan's question earlier. And then you would stop paying the voluntary uh, payment. You would take credit for everything you've already paid. And you wouldn't pay an attorney's fee on that. And it would just sort of roll into the overall permanency award. Okay, I hope that was responsive. And finally, uh, last question, uh, Lois asked me, Greg, why do you use a reverse chronological order? Wouldn't you want the doctor to see the progression of the case in chronological order? Good question. The reason we assemble the medical index is this way, or two reasons. A, as we are handling a case during the pendency of the litigation, we're generally speaking getting the medical records in reverse chronological order and are stacking them up in the medical index section of my file. I'm looking around this conference room and I don't see any files here I can pick up and sort of show you what our medical index is looking like. But in New Jersey, uh, the medicals are coming to us as the adjuster sends them to us. So that's the order they're sort of assembled. And the second reason is because that's the order that the physicians have requested we provide that to them. Uh, in other words, the physicians want the reverse chronological order uh, that we are working with. Uh, their offices typically are requesting they come in that format. And I think that's because they want to see the very beginning uh, or the top thing they want to see is when the petitioner was discharged, what the discharge diagnosis was. Was there any uh, restriction assigned by the treating physician and what the prognosis was? I think that's the first thing that they want to look at and then drill down through the uh, medicals. Um, all right. So that's all the questions I've received today. Um, if you have more questions, Feel free to reach out to me. You can always email me your questions in between webinars. Uh, you can always call me with your questions. Next week, our topic is going to be evaluating claims for permanency exposure. Uh, and we're going to be talking about how do we actually price cases. I'll be presenting that uh, next month as well. Okay, thanks for joining us. Have a great day.